The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! James. Yes, Paul. I'd like to welcome you back to the Third Men podcast, James. Thanks. Thanks. I'm going to cozy up with some delicious macaroni and cheese here. I see you've got that there. It looks uh, very yellow. Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. It's a very fluorescent food. Yeah. <laughs> um, for those of you out there who can't see, into this podcast I'm using air quotes for food yeah it's true he just he did do that I can I can uh, confirm that I would also like to welcome you the listener back James and I are just doing we're at a hundred percent tonight <laughs> yeah right now it's at the um it's at the the quietness level of a nice NPR talk yeah. show yeah like oh. you remember you, know, you remember in Twister like um you remember Twister James yeah, no, uh, 1997's biggest hit. It's probably like 94. I don't know. It's one of those. It was a 90s yeah. hit, right? 90s sleeper hit. Yeah. It slept. We're like... We slept. We're like we're watching the cows fly by our window right now yeah. in the calm... We're the cows. ...of the tornado. <laughs> <laughs> we're the cows. We're, we're the ones who are very calm being blown about. <laughs> we are going to persevere. We're going to carry on... We are both a little uh, worse for wear today, but we are going to be talking about a, a topic that is very exciting to the both of yes. us, James. A, a, we're going to be doing a Jack White Influences show about uh, the Flat Duo Jets, which are the late 80s, early 90s, psychobilly, although I sort of loathe that terminology, group that uh, that heavily influenced Jack White and the White Stripes, especially earlier in their career. Well, that's that sounds darn awesome, Paul. And you know what? That sounds like just the thing to pep me back up into maximum over... Wait for it. <laughs> Wait for it. Drive. Drive. Maximum overdrive. James is <laughs> maximum overdrive. And, you know, it's really a good chicken noodle soup for the rock and roll soul, the Flat Duo yeah. Jets, because they pull a lot of influence, James, from uh, from the past. You know, that's one of the things you see with these groups that influence Jack. Uh, they're either from the past 
or pull heavily from the past. He talks a lot about cleansing the palate, James. Yeah, yeah. These these fine folks have a lot of uh, definite musical inspiration from from like Elvis Presley and blues singers. You could see that they're pulling from similar resources that Jack was pulling from. Yeah, and, and targeting an era directly sort of following the Delta Blues, which we covered in our last Influences episode. But before we get to all that, James. Yeah, well, Paul, we have we have the audience so hyped up right now, <laughs> so just amped, that it's going to be hard to stop, Paul. It's going to be really hard to stop doing that. But we got to stop breaking down. It's a stop breaking down. Stop breaking down. Oh, James, um, please tell the audience what's that freaking. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we just had to take a hypodermic needle and sedate y'all <laughs> from from all this excitement. Uh, Stop breaking down is the is the segment of the show where you learn just how wrong about things we can be. We get stuff wrong on this show, and we ask you, the listener, and ourselves occasionally in dark moments like these, what, what we've done wrong and <laughs> what we've said wrong, and then you send them in to us, we learn about them, and then we tell you exactly what we did wrong in this segment. Stop breaking down so that you guys can learn the correct information. Yeah, and this one was a real doozy. We've really uh, inserted our manhoods into the pooch many times Ooh. on the... We've really took a took a steaming <laughs> on the bed many times in this show. Yeah. We've really got things wrong sometimes in the past on this show. There we go. But yeah, this one good. was really this one was kind of a big one. This week we, uh, boy, in episode twenty four we covered Jack White's blunderbuss tour. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, I got this. I take full responsibility. Got this very wrong. I think I mentioned that actually like Brooke Wagner was the one that was like pregnant during that tour. I believe so, yes. Not so. Um, Burn Davies was the original bass player for the Peacocks. Uh, th- this is courtesy of Callie Durga. Callie pointed this out and uh, basically told us, oofta, you guys really messed this one up. Burn Davies was the original bass player for the Peacocks who had to leave the tour about halfway through because she was pregnant and she was replaced by Catherine Popper. Uh, Brooke Wagner was not pregnant, and if she was, uh, nobody knows that. How did you know Gracie's pregnant? Nobody knows that. Gracie does. But I certainly (laughs) didn't, and that was uh, just really, really easily fixable and totally wrong on my part, so sorry about that. And it didn't help that members of the Buzzards and the Peacocks were, like, liking and retweeting our show on Twitter, and it, had they stopped to listen to it, would have heard such a gross, horrible error on my part. So I personally apologize to all the Buzzards and Peacocks of the world. Yeah, we done goofed it. Sorry for such a, such a hard beef there, guys. Yeah. We beefed it, and that was stop breaking now. Stop breaking now. All right, James, but there's only one thing to do in the face of all that wrong, and that's to get it all that right. Is to take Jesus. a nap. Oh, oh yeah. Well, that's what I was doing before. It's lovely. <laughs> Me too. All right. 
Um, yeah, let's get right with Jesus. <laughs> All right, James. So we're going to cover the flat duo Jets here. We're going to go through a little bit of the band's history. We're going to go through some of their releases and songwriting approach, things like that. And then we're going to sort of round it out with uh, Jack White's direct influence and interaction with the group. And we're going to start here with how the band got together. Oh, very nice. Yeah. <laughs> so the fl- this sounds like a nice, delightful podcast, Paul. The Flat Duo Jets are a two-piece band, although they weren't always, but they're a two-piece band, guitar and drums, that came from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and began in the early 1980s, uh, when frontman Dex Romweber got together with drummer Chris Crow-Smith. They were very, very young when they first got together. In fact, Dex was in bands as early as 11 years old. Oh, man, I was going to joke, like, at the age of two, but seriously, 11's... Yeah, it's pretty young. That's not when they started the Flat Duo Jets, but it wasn't long after that. He was the youngest of all his brothers and sisters in a very musical family, so that sounds kind of familiar. Yes, it does. Yeah, so he got together with Chris, and they are very heavily, if we had to sum them up, I would say they're very heavily influenced by 1950s rock and roll, wouldn't you say, James? Yeah, they got that country twang, a, a southern twang to it, which 1950s rock and roll is rife with, and yeah, it's uh, it's good. Nice, nice, uh, simple, simple riffs. Yes. Good stuff. Yeah, it's classified, like I said at the top of the show, it's classified as Psycho Billy, but I really just don't like using that term. Um, yeah. It's, it's really punk rock blues with rockabilly flavor. They're taking like the leftovers of punk, which was sort of the late 70s, and they're taking new wave, late 70s, early 80s, and they're basically covering a lot of Elvis tunes with that and creating yeah. this angry version of rockabilly music. For on robbery. Four o'clock in the morning, I was waiting in my cell. I heard a call. I heard somebody yell. Rockabilly music was, I'm not sure if it was coined by Carl Perkins, but it was definitely made famous by Carl Perkins, who was one of the early rock and rollers who was very country influenced. And he, you know, he's the one that wrote Blue, Blue Suede Shoes and recorded it prior to Elvis's version. So I would say it's really just sped up Carl Perkins when you get right down to it. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not even always sped up. Sometimes it's at the genuine speed. If you listen to them in the 80s, you're amongst a very small group of people, shall I say. That was a diplomatic way of saying (laughs) they weren't really out there a whole lot. They released a record in 1985, which was called In Stereo, and it was released on a small label called Dolphin Records. And they did have an appearance on the MTV show Cutting Edge, or The Cutting Edge in 85. The hit horror show starring U2's The Edge? <laughs> yeah. To record this show, I had to watch uh, It Might Get Loud, so believe me, The Edge is 
swirling in my mind right now. <laughs> I love it where he's like, listen to my new riff. It's just two chords. How bonkers is that? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're cheating. That's called <laughs> cheating, The Edge. Anyway, um, <laughs> but, you know, they weren't really met with any acclaim whatsoever. In fact, in the band's lifetime, they were met with very little to minimal acclaim at all. This is a band that was flying under the radar. Yeah, hey, they were uh, really goober and peasing it. Yeah, kind of. Their self-titled debut album, which was recorded in a garage direct to two tracks in the late 80s, but was not officially released until 1990. Uh, it's a cool album. play a couple songs from it here, but, you know, it's, it's a lot of songs that classic rock musicians love to play. Elvis-type stuff, 50s-era rock. But, like, sped up and spit on. Mm-hmm. Gross. <laughs> the spit part, not not the, the speed part. The speed part sounds fine. But as you can hear, you know, it sounds pretty good. You know, it's it's pretty classic rock and roll. He's, he's kind of got that crooning voice and stuff. And the album got a little push with another MTV appearance in that same year, 1990. A celebrity deathmatch. Yeah. <laughs> predates, predates celebrity deathmatch. This is a show called 120 Minutes. Is that the one where uh, James Franco saws his own arm off? Let's get through this. <laughs> Uh, they James, they performed on Late Night with David Letterman that Oh, year. wow. Yeah, That's they, pretty awesome. Yeah, they played the song Wild Wild Lover. Let's listen to a little bit of that. The New York Times uh, called our next band uh, Dangerous, and they have a brand new album out. It's right here. No, that's what the New York Times said. Uh, we are dangerous. No, but they're also dangerous. Right, we and yeah. they are dangerous. Uh, the name of the album, the same as the band, uh, Flat Duo Jets. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome them, the Flat Duo Jets. Oh, kids. <laughs> As you can hear, you know, that's a it's a pretty energetic performance. If you look that clip up on YouTube, and, and you should, it's pretty cool. Oh, I do. I did. I heard it. You'll notice that they're actually playing with an upright bassist and an additional percussion person. So they weren't always a two-piece, but the two-piece aspect of their band, the guitar and drums aspect, is the uh, aspect that would appeal to a young Jack White, as we'll learn about later in the show. Hmm. So during the 80s, I, I, I'll sort of talk about this a little bit later in the show, but Dax Romweber is still a very young man, and he used to sleep with pictures of Elvis, Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, Gene Vincent, and Little Richard over his bed on a piece of wall uh, called the Rock of... A little hole in it. ...that he called the Rock of Ages, and... <laughs> Uh, and there was also a shrine to the bad man Brown, James Brown, elsewhere in this shack he used to live in, which, again, I will I will get into. They cover this on a few of those early MTV appearances, and you're like, oh, man, I wish he got better and stopped doing so many drugs. He puts the psycho in psychobilly. Yeah. Their early career, upon release of their self-titled debut album, the band went on a national tour of the U.S. They were opening for a band called The Cramps. Which is oh, yeah. uh, which is cool, and 
you'll hear a lot of people when making reference to flat duo jets they often also mention the cramps as an influence or like the cramps as another group they were into So it looks like they were touring periodically throughout their career, and it's unclear which actual show a young Jack White would have seen them perform at. But we do know that they toured in 1990, 1994, and 1996 at the very least. And we do know that their, the group's follow-up album in 1991 was an album that was particularly close to Jack White's heart. So while it's unclear when Jack would have seen them, it's likely that concert took place after 1991, but prior to 1997. So we'll, we'll call it either that. 94 96 tour kind of time frame but jack white makes a lot of mention to seeing the band and having them be a great influence upon him in in his uh, in his career as a musician which we will get to later in the show hmm. just to backtrack a little bit here they had a cool little appearance on a 1987 film called athens georgia inside out and it's a weird little clip where they talk about releasing their own magazine and uh, say the phrase, Dextra, Dextra, read all about it. Ah, that's pretty great, though. It is. It's great. It's a little weird. He seems unwell in, <laughs> in the clip. I was kind of worried for him because right afterwards he was like, yeah, it's pretty stupid, but hey. And then, um, <laughs> so that's kind of weird. Um, th- during the same interview, he talked about why they only use guitars that are given to them and cheap equipment is... A priority for him. We'll play a little bit of that interview. You know, we didn't practice, and we and we uh, and we got out of being a band, and and basically it's kind of like starting over yeah. again because we're we're getting back into it. We're really and we haven't been into it, you know. Yeah. But now we're getting back into. It. We're even going to have a monthly magazine that I'm. Gonna, I'll send it to Davey so you guys can sell it at your stores. Flat Duo Jet magazine, up to update on the Flat Duo Jet. Dextra, Dextra, read all about it. The Flat Duo Jet's got a magical scene. Dextra, Dextra, read all about it. Dextra, Dextra. Pretty stupid, but hey. <laughs> He's kind of a strange young guy. He seems like the guy in high school who, like, drank a whole lot, but, like, really early in his life. So there was something always a little off-kilter about him when he talked kind of thing. Um, Mm. And his voice always sounds sort of shaky and unsure of himself. But when he opens up his mouth to sing, man, he's got a beautiful voice. It's this low sort of baritone I don't know if I'm using baritone right, but it's definitely a low voice that really carries with it some beautiful, beautiful rock and roll melody that doesn't seem to match at all this guy's weird speaking voice when he's going on about Dextra, Dextra, read all about it. His persona seems like it would fit in well on CW's show Riverdale. <laughs> he, he's, he's, a, he's a loner, loves to sing. Uh, nobody would have expected it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he seems like the kind of guy that would uh, un, unabashedly build... Uh, Ed Big Daddy Roth model kits of Ratfink. Sure. And he, I would say he's like if Jughead was played by Bobcat Goldthwait. He's like, <laughs> wow, 
But he's got that. He looks a little like Jughead, but he's at, like, at least, you know, you know. at least Bobcat would probably eat the hamburger. For God's sake, <laughs> eat a hamburger, CW's Jughead. Yeah. So the bass, the upright bass player who played with the band from 1988 to 1990, his name is Grizz Tone Mayer, by the way. Of course it is. Yeah. And uh, over the course of their career, they released just a mess of albums. In, in addition to the two we already mentioned, they released the album Go Go Harlem, Baby in 1991, Safari in 1993, White Trees in 1993, I'll Have a Merry Christmas Without You in 1994, now I'm called Introducing the Flat Duo Jets in 1995. They had a few seven-inchers after that called Dexmas and Jet Set, so a lot of Christmas imagery going on. An album called Red Tango in 1996, and then Wild Blue Yonder in 1998. They seem to have a lot of f- fun wordplay with Dex's name, which is good because it's a it's an odd name. Their names all sound like jumbles that Stan Lee probably would have come up with at some point. Yeah, kind of uh, like that. Or, or better yet, George Lucas, you know, one funny-sounding word attached to another funny-sounding word and mushed together. Yeah. The thing is, it doesn't have to be articulate. All it has to do is be able to open and close. And uh, so actually, James, you know, it took until the group's ninth album their final album uh, for a major label release it was called lucky Lu- number nine it was called lucky eye and oh wow all right yeah and it was released by outpost records and produced by scott lit who was rem's producer huh. yeah so james we're gonna just you know what this is kind of clunky but we're just gonna go ahead and do a little bit of a little digging here all right, let's dig a little bit. And we're going to have to cover cover that dig when the helicopter touches down with John Hammond in it because he's kicking up all kinds of dust. And you know, if he does that, he's just going to cover up our finds, James. Yeah, and he's going to waltz right into our house, pop open a bottle of our champagne. James, do you know what we were trying to cover? Some kind of theme park? No, we're trying to cover the bones we found underground. Oh, Oh, right. <laughs> uh, gotta cover him with some kind of tarp or some kind of r- rag. This is Rag and Bone, James. Rag and Bone! Rag and Bone! Rag and Bone! James, would you like to tell the people what Rag and Bone is? It's Rag and Bone! It's a Rag and Bone! James, would you like to tell the people what Rag and Bone is, please? <laughs> Rag and bone, for you listeners out there, is when we find a crazy little bit of silly or dumb or wacky or crazy information about the subject at hand in our research, and we we package it up nice and clean, and we we ship it off to you via Amazon drone so that you can receive it in a nice package that we like to call Rag and Bone. Yeah, and so this, this week's Rag and Bone is, remember I was telling you about that shack, James, a moment ago? The Love Shack, yes. It's a little old place where he could get together. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this shack <laughs> he lived in. I believe he called it his the mausoleum, and he claimed to have modeled it after the Munsters, and he said that... <laughs> He at, at some point when he's describing this thing, he points to a photo that he has on the wall of Herman Munster and um who's the who's the mother from the Munsters? Um Mrs. Munster. Mrs. Munster. Mama Lily Munster. Lily Munster. Lily. Right. Um, of course. Wikipedia has a lovely title for this article. The Munsters is an American sitcom depicting the home life of a family of benign monsters. <laughs> Uh, he, he claimed that Herman and Lily Munster were his parents, and 
that he was building his mausoleum based on their guidance. And, uh, let's see. Oh. This is what gave me the inspiration for this place. That's my, my father, my mother. Uh, very nice, very nice couple. I think Dex was pretty drunk during this interview, but he he looked like he hadn't showered in maybe eight months, and it was uh, it was a pretty sorry state of affairs walking around this shack he was living in in North Carolina, which was clearly pretty freaking cold because it was North Carolina in like February. Welcome to the Mars. This is where I spend my time. It's where I spend my time growing up and drinking beer. <laughs> That ain't, that ain't true. That ain't true. Um, I'll give you a brief tour of the place. It's not really that, you know, people think it's a big deal, but it ain't a big deal. It's just home. Tell you personally. He was very proud of a couple things. His Rock of Ages wall, which I detailed. Here is my bed. I spend many a lonesome night in this bed. And overlooking the bed is the Rock of Ages. We got Elvis at 19 with a stack of That's All Right Mama records that he recorded in 1954. Um, his shirt's off and he's looking slim. He's just looking real good. It's probably the best Elvis ever looked. That's Elvis Presley right there. And below him, we have Richie Valens. He's me and it's our band's current favorite. He's, I mean, we got a record by him and we listen to him all the time and he's just the greatest. And before him, Buddy Holly. And God, Buddy Holly's just my tremendous idol. I don't know. He's just... I, I don't know him, but I love him. <laughs> and below him, Gene Vincent. And there's never going to be a wildest rocker ever again. Then little Richard, and he ain't rocking no more, just like the rest of them aren't rocking no more. It's kind of our uh, shrine to the rockers. He uh, would pan to photos he had snipped out of magazines and pasted on the wall. Keep in mind, this is MTV filming this guy. But... <laughs> And at, this is uh, pre-cribs, but you know. Yeah, and he was also super, super proud of his co- what he called his coffin table. And then the coffin table right here. This baby, this is Big John. We got this the night we moved into the mausoleum, but we went out in the woods and got it by the railroad tracks. It looked very dusty, and they were clearly ashing onto it. Um. <laughs> I was like for real worried about this guy. Like when they were, uh, it was kind yeah. of. Yeah. Well, the man's dragging coffins from the river to put next to his shame house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to know who the delightful neighbor is, because if the if it's muddled after the monsters, there's got to be like a delightful straight laced neighbor who is getting just oh so upset with there being monsters living next door. Yeah. She's got binoculars out. She's watching them. They're performing weird monstrous acts. It's real weird for everybody. So that was Rag and Bone, James. Ta da! All right. <laughs> so the only reason MTV was filming this at all is because, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Dex's brother and sister, his, his older siblings, were also musicians of a like slightly more acclaim. Most of you remember Sarah Ron Weber, former drummer of Let's Active. Now Sarah lives with her family in Carborough, North Carolina. Ron Weber's a pretty well known around here. Her brother, Joe, is lead singer in UV Prom. 
her sister Monica, a rock and roll devotee. And then there's little brother Dexter. His uh, sister Sarah Ron Weber uh, was a founding member of the band Snatches of Pink and had also played with a couple other groups uh, called Let's Active and Clarissa and has since played with a couple other other people. But So she had some notoriety, and then Dex's oldest brother, Joe Rom Weber, was the lead singer of a group called UV Prom. So as I mentioned, you know, they had released a bunch of albums in the 90s. They released their last album, Lucky Eye, at the end of the decade. That's when the band sort of broke up. Basically, the drummer, Crow, was starting not to play every gig toward the mid to late 90s, replaced on the road by drummer Crash Laresh. By 1999, the band was no more. So they had this prolific outburst in the 90s and then sort of burnt out, but influenced a lot of people in that span of time. Hmm. Uh, after the band broke up, Dex Ron Weber did a lot of solo work. It's good. It sounds just like the Flat Duo Jets. lot of solo albums from this guy he would hit the road as a solo act he toured with bands like cat power squirrel nut zippers and i never heard of either of them but i heard of neko case he toured with neko case first of all you've never heard of squirrel nut zippers the contemporaries to the disgustingly named cherry pop and daddies Um, no they're fine they're whatever (laughs) They, they had their own zoot suit riot or whatever it was called they had a version like that cat power is actually really good i would highly recommend listening to them if you if you get a chance really well let's listen to them right now james well thanks for that recommendation they sounded swell anyway neko case they're getting some acclaim. They're getting getting some notoriety. The Dex Ron Weber duo was the new group that Dex was in from about the mid two thousands on to about two, 2013, which he played with his aforementioned sister Sarah. They were brother sister rock and roll duo act. Art imitated life, imitated art because Jack saw the flat duo jets, based the white stripes around them, at least in presentation, became a brother sister mm-hmm. act, and then the band that they based it on became a brother-sister act later so it's just a real real tangled web we've webbed web weaved webbed we webbed <laughs> we webbed <laughs> yeah, we, we done we weaved it we done weaved it uh, so the flat duo jets got back together and released a new album in 2016 called the great jones and they're currently touring europe wow all right Good. way to get back on your feet guys yeah it was is it cr- is the crow back on the drums, or I, is it uh, I, Crash Bandicoot or whatever? <laughs> I believe so. Um, I could be wrong about that. Um, the thing that spurred them to get back together was a documentary film that was released about the group called Two-Headed Cow. And, James, I tried to track this documentary down to watch it in preparation for this show, but as it turns out, the DVD is long out of print and goes for about $100 online. Ah. So I will, ah. I will not be purchasing that. 
However, if somebody has and wants to give us some factoids about that for us to smell, please send them over. I would love to hear. Some quotes from Dex from the documentary I was able to find online. This is sort of a cool quote. This is, they were asking him some questions. They said, Ron Weber, now 45, retains a similar bluntness about his legacy and cult idolatry. He said, quote, I've got bigger problems to solve now than how many people know me, he tells Rolling Stone. As he explains in the film, he's always admired outcasts. He calls his heroes, quote, heavy-duty f***ers, real partiers and wreckage makers, including Errol Flynn, the writer Nut Hampson, and his favorite rocker Jerry Lee Lewis. So he's got a real cool little set of friggin' idols here. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, at least he's not idolizing Jerry Lewis. Uh, even the bigger problems that he has to fry rent. Um, <laughs> well, that's that's really funny you say that because the next quote says it's been a hell of a ride, raucous, sometimes beautiful, sometimes ugly. I don't really expect anything other than to pay off my mortgage and put gas in the car. Life doesn't really owe you anything. Wow! All right, so you really hit the nail Real. on the head, James. That's yet another similarity to our Gillis friend. Life doesn't really owe you anything. Yeah, he's not entitled. No. Another quote here, quote, I know what it's like to be free, and I know what it's like to be caged, and when you're playing music, you want to be free. And James, somebody very uh, somebody very close to this podcast contributed to this documentary. Would you like to uh, venture a guess as to who? But, but was it Dad? Well, I guess they're not really close to this podcast at all. Jack White contributed to the documentary. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow, that's cool. And uh, he actually opened the thing. This is via Rolling Stone. Two-Headed Cow opens with a testimonial by Jack White, who has been acknowledging Ron Weber's influence publicly for years. The White Stripes frontman invited Ron Weber to his third man studio to cut a couple collaborative tracks a while back and tells the film crew that he was inspired by how little Ron Weber seemed to care about what people thought of him while he was performing. The thing I liked about the Flat Duo Jets was uh, they were showing people what was possible uh, in a live performance and on a record. It was really refreshing to see a band like that, that uh, it was obvious when you just watched Dexter perform, he didn't care what people thought about um, him. He just wanted to express uh, these songs that were kind of coming out of him. was about energy and attitude and uh, that soulfulness. There's nothing fake about it. Which leads to our Jack White influence portion of the podcast. Ah. This is via Rolling Stone. Long before the Stripes, there were the flat duo Jets. Dexter Romweber's ferocious guitar-drums duo from North Carolina who blazed through the 80s and 90s playing some of the most face-melting roots rock ever heard. Jack White has paid tribute to the influence of the Jets and the wild-eyed Rom Weber in a variety of places. In 2009's It Might Get Loud, a guitar summit pairing White with Jimmy Page and The Edge, White declared that seeing the Jets for the first time, quote, opened up a whole new inspiration for me about the guitar, and he was downright effusive in the 2006 cult classic Rom Weber documentary Two-Headed Cow, which is actually when that documentary came out, 2006, calling Rom Weber, quote, a huge influence on my music, one of the best kept secrets in rock and roll underground. In 2009, White recorded a 7-inch with Ron Weber, and in 2011, he reissued the Jets' long-out-of-print 1991 album Go Go Harlem Baby on his third band record's imprint. So, they mentioned It Might Get Loud uh, in that article. It Might Get Loud, James, is the first time I ever heard of the Flat Duo 
Jaguar Jets. I don't know about you. Yeah, probably. I've definitely heard the name before in other assorted Jack White dealings. He's he's brought them up before, but yeah, you're probably right. He really calls them out in that documentary, uh, along with calling out like Blind Willie McTell and you know mm-hmm. the Delta Blues people. That's where I was first um, initiated. <laughs> Some quotes from the film, it might get loud. You know, I'm just going to sort of paraphrase some of these things because I was kind of taking notes as it was going. But Jack wasn't really interested to begin with in the guitar at all. He details in the movie that because everyone played guitar, it it interested him the least. So he Mm -hmm. wound up as a drummer to start playing along with his favorite records in his bedroom. He talks about having two drum kits in his bedroom, a guitar amp and a reel-to-reel set up with no bed. Apparently he slept on a piece of foam on an angle on the floor by the door. His brother, I think, gave him that reel-to-reel, too, which I think he brings up in the Grammy speech. Oh, does he? He talks a lot in the movie about how rock and roll wasn't cool, and if you were playing an instrument, you were especially not cool. But he also says something interesting here, which I found telling. He talks about distortion and anger, sort of the punk ideal. He says channeling the pain you felt from the guys who picked on you in high school, basically using that distortion and anger to punish those people again so it was our chance to push you down Hmm. i found that kind of interesting also his fellow upholsterer brian muldoon showed jack punk rock music and the cramps were one of them which is funny because we talked about the flat duo jets touring with the cramps Hmm. Uh, but he also showed him velvet underground and that's kind of where that influence came from with jack so it was through muldoon in the movie, Jack references the song Froggy Went a Courtin', which is a cover that the Flat Duo Jets did on their album Go Go Harlem, and that was the thing that blew his mind. it to the edge and jimmy page and they're like oh yeah cool or you know they're sort of nodding along. it's like no no no, listen to this and they're like yeah we know the song um <laughs> so anyway jack details in the film how he went to go see them perform and was blown away by the sparseness of it a little 10 watt amp and a silver tone guitar he called it lovingly a backwards direction and caused him to reassess what backwards meant in his mind it opened up a whole new inspiration to him on guitar so basically, the flat duo jets he's saying caused him to pick up the guitar again and leave the drums behind. Well, not permanently, obviously, but yeah, right. to uh, to pick it up as a more main instrument. Right, right, right. He also drew inspiration from their pared down equipment. This is the quote from earlier when they interviewed for that movie. This baby, I got this in an Athens music store. The guy I want, and the great thing is this burn mark. I had been walking a lot and playing this guitar. I came in and set it on a candle, and it turns out the burn mark is right where my hand would be. You know, it just kind of, it burned my, it burned into it, you know? I like that. That kind of, that's the little trademark. But it was given to me by an Athens music store in the back. I walked in there and they just gave it to me. It was great. And, and the weird thing is, I've been really wanting one of these F-hole guitars, you know? And it's just, some things come your way when you want them, you know? I got a snare, a 
a little bass drum, a tom, and a big old ride I used. And I, I bought the whole thing for about $100. And, you know, it's no, it's, it's, I don't know what name it is. Just, you know. Sears just, or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. But we, we believe in cheap equipment. Because, yeah. like, God, when, we, when we, we did gigs without our original equipment, you know, and we used big, expensive stuff, and it was horrible. It was yeah. like, I mean, you didn't have yeah. the feeling or, yeah. or the sound that we have, you yeah. know. There's a certain sound you get yeah. out of the old stuff. Yeah. This is a very Jack notion. Whether Jack had seen this movie in 87 or was modeling some of his own eccentricities after them, or if this was just like-mindedness from the two, that I don't know. But Jack often, while he's got fancy new guitars, the guitar he played with the Stripes was something he got from basically a Salvation Army type store. Oh yeah, that airline guitar is a cheap, well, should be a cheap guitar made of plastic and, you know, yeah, something, something you can beat up and learn on. So that's a big similarity. Also, the aesthetic of the Flat Duo Jets obviously had some kind of influence on Jack because the group is pared down in color scheme, mostly black and white. The most notable similarity, obviously, is the two-piece aspect of it. It's Dex's band leader guiding Crow with a glance just like Jack does with Meg on the stage. Mm -hmm. Um, You can see him leading Crow through the set. Dex's hair in the early 80s, very similar to Jack's sort of standard bass look, which I found kind of funny. And the black leather look that Dex wears is also very similar to how Jack looked when he was first going solo. So there was a lot of similarity there. So we talked about Dex being the youngest child in a musical family pairing things down, living in somewhat of poverty. All these things are Jack White hallmarks. As we mentioned from the Rolling Stone article, one of the biggest collaborations Jack ever actually did with Dex Romweber was to record new music with Dex Romweber duo, uh, Mm -hmm. which is Dex and his sister Sarah. This was a quote about it via Uprooted Music. The new Dex Romweber duo released their first full-length on Bloodshot Records in 2009, the guest-filled Ruins of Berlin. In April of that same year, the duo recorded a split 7-inch single at Jack White's Third Man Records to be part of the label's Blue series. And so that single is really, really cool, and uh, we'll play a little bit of that here. I think it's really great. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, it's the first time I heard Dex Romweber's name, you know, proper. Yeah, me too. In fact, when I picked up the single when I bought it, I didn't know that it was the guy from Flat Duo Jets. Yeah, same here. I put it on the turntable, and like what I do with Blue Series stuff is when I put it on, I kind of like Google a little bit about the artist that's in it while I'm listening to it. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, it was like a, a light bulb went on because I remembered it from It Might Get Loud. They also did a live record at Third Man Studios in Nashville, which is cool. I haven't heard that before, James. I don't know if you've heard that. I have not, but I did know that they made it. Yeah. Uh, this is a quote from Dex about how it came about. We were actually on tour and going through Nashville when Jack called my road manager and asked if we could stop by his studio to make a record. We were headed that way anyway, and we had a day off, so we recorded the first track that night. We arrived, and then went in the next day to record the other track. Make 
Taking that 45 was a pretty quick affair. Before we even went in, Jack already had that song, Last Kind Word Blues in Mind, which we'll play a little bit of. The last kind word I heard my daddy say The last kind word that I heard my daddy say If I die, if I die In the German world Want you to say say uh, it's always been a favorite of mine so it was kind of funny how we had that one waiting there and then the live record was all planned jack was going to throw this big shindig and we would come there and record this live record there again we were out on tour at the time and he just threw this big party and a lot of people showed up we thought the final product was actually pretty cool nice the interviewer here asked were you connected to jack prior to these recordings Dex says, I remember Crash and I played in front of the White Stripes in Boston in the early 2000s. That was the first time I had met Jack in person. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Throughout the years, Sarah and I have been making these records, and then we played a really successful gig with Jack backing Wanda Jackson at the Music Hall of Williamsburg in Brooklyn. Wow. Which was maybe a year ago. So... Off and on, we crossed paths, and it usually revolved around doing some kind of work. Sometimes it might have been a gig, or it might have been a record we were doing. We just kind of cross paths when we do. This is via Spin, uh, talking about the single. The single features two songs recorded at White's home studio in Nashville. The pair share vocals on a cover of blues singer Gishi Wiley's Last Kind Word Blues and Ron Weber's The Wind Did Move, which Ron Weber described to Nashville-based site MetroMix.com as, quote, dark sort of hillbilly blues. Sarah Ron Weber plays drums on the record. This is a quote from Ron Weber, quote, Jack likes to move things along quickly, and he's a very positive producer. Ron Weber said, later confessing to being moved by White's admiration for his legacy. Quote, it feels good. I can go to my grave and at least know I accomplished something. Nothing gigantic, but still, it's something. It's touching. <laughs> yeah, he only inspired the guy who invented Seven Nation Army. Uh, yeah, so. nothing, nothing gigantic. Right. So the, that record was engineered by Vance Powell, and it was released in May uh, of that year. So, James, that leads to a big wow moment for me. Wow me, Paul. Wow I me. I found an interview with Stereo Gum from the time. Okay. So, wow. I was just going to read this to you. You know Jack White's mission to join every band in America? Still going strong. The Dead Weatherman is putting his new third-man studio to use by producing and playing on the forthcoming 7-inch from the Dex Ron Weber duo. The Winded Move features Jack on vocals, bass, and saw, and its B-side is a cover of Gishi Wiley's Last Kind Word Blues. There's a photo of siblings Dexter and Sarah Ron Weber with their new third wheel. Meanwhile, the Dead Weather have appearances lined up in Louisville, Outside Lands, and ACL. So that's stuff we knew. That's not the wow. Here's the wow. And the White Stripes? They have plans, too. In an interview with Music Radar, Jack says he and Meg have already recorded songs for a possible 2010 release. He also discusses Meg's acute anxiety, which derailed the duo's last tour. Quote, it's a very real problem, but one that I'm happy to say is in the past. What? Did Jack and Meg record music? 
there's an album out there? Are we gonna get that? What? What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English and what? This is a year prior to their breakup. Yes, it's 2009. Which means he said they record... Paul, there's an album out there. I guess. Unless they're talking about something else. I'm... What? Say what again? That's crazy. Yeah, so that's... Again, that was just embedded in this article here. dropped as if it was nothing. But I don't know if that's demos. I don't know what it is, but... We were asked in our listener questions episode, are we ever going to get any White Stripes album? Is it possible he'll ever dust that off and release that? Maybe. I don't. Well, is it possible for him to do that even? Because would he need some kind of consent from Meg's uh, either management or her to release that? What's Meg going to say? No. I mean, she could or she could be hard to contact or something. You know, there's rights stuff too. Maybe there's a reason that they can't. But I don't the know. fact that this might exist. This could be our Indiana Jones quest. We could go on some kind of last crusade. We'll find a holy grail. I'll choose the gilded one because obviously Gillis sounds like guild and then I'll die. And uh, somebody will say you chose poorly. And Paul, you'll go after the wooden cup because no, the upholstered cup because Jack White is obviously an upholsterer so he would know better. So you, you would take the upholstered cup and drink from that one and it would be the, the weird white stripes flat duo jet record uh and you would just get to listen to that i guess but i'd be dead so it's a trade-off but hey there's um that's that's our uh jack jack white john gillis in the last crusade indy wait hold on detroit gillis in the last crusade detroit no anyway i went off into a tangent there i'm gonna leave all of that in um (laughs) Just to breeze through these last couple here, this is via the Third Band website. They're talking about that show at the Blue Room. (laughs) They said, Upon opening the Blue Room to the public for shows back in early 2010, we knew it was imperative that the first show was something special. Hand-selected by Jack White was none other than the original brother-sister combo Dex-Romweber duo. Brother Dex is known for being one half of the much-admired American rockabilly set Flat Duo Jets, but for his project joins Sister Sarah and a little bit of surf rock and a whole lot of blues. Dex strapped with his silvertone vintage guitar and Sarah's wall of sound drums combined to kick out jams such as Mexicali Baby, Brazil, and the Sweet Love Letters, to name but a few. So that was, that's cool. Yeah, and the, the other wow moment for me was that Dex, Ron Weber, had played with Wanda Jackson. He opened for them, and it looks like he opened for Wanda Jackson in a couple different places. It was at the Music Hall of Williamsburg in Brooklyn, New York in January of 2011 that he was talking about in that article, but it looks like there was a few gigs that they played together around the U.S. as well. Hmm. This is via Spin Magazine. Jackson's sound still haunts rockabilly revivalists such as third man recording artist and former flat duo jet Dexter Romweber, who delivered a short yet briskly evocative opening set with his sister Sarah. But it's a style that's becoming increasingly difficult to emulate without irony. Jack White rewrites the book with loosey-goosey arrangements for horns, backing singers, and steel guitar, all dressed in matching vintage flair that attempt to recapture the spirit of Sun Records. That's I'm talking about that. Mm. And then the last sort of thing here is that Third Man, yeah, did reissue the 1991 album Go Go Harlem Baby in 2011, and it was reissued, this is via Consequence of Sound, the reissue will be released on October 18th on Standard Vinyl, with 75 limited edition black and white split color LPs also available on the day of release at Third Man Records Store. And that album features a song called Apple Blossom Time, 
as well as the song Froggy Mountain Court. And now James Apple Blossom Time, obviously. Yeah, there's some striking similarities. Yes, and they played Apple Blossom Time on tour. The White Stripes covered Apple Blossom Time on tour. And I found a beautiful version of it, which looks like it's live from Brazil. I'm not sure if it's from the Under Amazonian Lights documentary, but it is live from Brazil. And I'm going to play it for you here. Meg, can I do this one by myself for a second? Yeah, I think that is uh, live from Manaus. Manaus? Manaus? Yeah, I think that's the Amazonian Lights show. It's really cool. Um, So, James, I think think we're going to kick it to our third man for this week. Yeah, Paul, I think we should kick it to our third man. Maybe we should take him and put him on a flat duo jet. Welcome to our third man for this week, Mike Cavallero. Mike, how you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? We're good. Uh, we're swell. We're good. Thanks for joining Just, us today. Th- thanks for having me. Um, so yeah. Mike is is here. He's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, seeing the Flat Duo Jets live, sort of in their, their prime, but also going to talk to us a little bit about the scene and things that were going on and a little about his own musical background. Mike is a musician, also known as Johnny X, and has a long history with various musical groups and things like that. But Mike, do you want to start telling us a little bit about how you got into music, how you started playing guitar, that kind of thing? You want to give us just a little bit of background? Sure. There was always a guitar around. You know, I took some lessons when I was maybe in grade school. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, you know, my brother played drums, my sister played piano, you know, I, played, I played guitar, you know. And then, you know, you're, it's just something that you do when you're a kid, your parents want you to learn an instrument and then you kind of, <laughs> you, you grow out of it, you forget about it, you know, which it did. And, and I think around when I got into high school, you start to, you know, now you, you start to get interested in music, I guess. It mm-hmm. seems like something happens around that age. Yeah. You become an angsty teen or something. <laughs> <laughs> You got to skulk in some kind of corner and you need some kind of soundtrack to skulk to. (laughs) Exactly. It all, it all starts to sort of come together. And, um, and music I think was very important to me in high school. Suddenly, um, there's those records that sort of get you through the day. Yeah. What were, what were those for you? 
those records? Well, for me, it was it was a lot of Springsteen. Yeah, nice. all right. It was, it, was, it was very Springsteen. Yeah, us too. I had a lot yeah. of Beatles, and I had a lot of Stone Temple Pilots. <laughs> yeah, Beatles were very important to me, too. Some of the first songs I learned to play were Beatles songs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Also, I guess, you know, I grew up and went to high school in New Jersey, and, and it, for some reason, it seemed like almost everybody was in a band. It was, it was hard to not to have a few friends who were playing music, and then, and then that's kind of contagious, like... It was something that you did when you hung out, like, you know, if I went over a friend's house, like somebody was playing guitar and, and it's just, it was this constant thing. So to sort of move into being in a sort of terrible high school band, it just was very typical, mm-hmm. right? And I think what happened, it may be my personality or something, was I took it way too seriously. <laughs> As most I high think, school bands do, though. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, maybe not. I guess not the people I was I was playing with. Like it was more uh, a way to uh, a, just a, a part of going to a party was was playing music. But I just I kind of was getting very serious about trying to play music. You know, yeah. I wasn't really interested in the social aspect of it necessarily. <laughs> you know, so then what happens is you're kind of at odds because your bandmates are dropping acid and, and you're actually trying to play. Right, right. And it's a, it, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work, you know? And so uh, I had this other group of friends who were kind of approaching it the same way. And like, you know, when someone you grew up with hands you an EP, you know, like a four song seven inch, you're kind of blown away. You're like, wow. Like, you know, yeah. when you're 17 or 18, yeah. like the idea that your friend made this yeah, thing you did it exists on vinyl it's real yeah, it's, it's, a real it's insane thing. yeah it really is it blows your mind and if it's good if it's good on top of that you know it's like it, it really blows your mind so i had these friends that were doing that and i was like oh my god this is and that was all happening in new brunswick like the new brunswick scene was like super important mm-hmm. at that time to me you know yeah and so I started hanging out there. Like I left the area I was hanging out in and I started going to New Brunswick because it felt like that's where, where stuff was happening. And, um, you know, you had the beginnings of a real like kind of burgeoning suburban punk rock scene in New Brunswick in the in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, so. It's still kind of resonating there, too. Uh, I know the Screaming Females just kind that's of right. uh, the screaming came females. out of there. Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. I love them a lot. Yeah. yeah, we saw them. Yeah. Where did you see them? They opened for uh, the Dead Weather, I think. Yeah, on their first tour. Yeah, it was in New York. Oh, okay. Yeah, some at Starland Ballroom. Oh, nice. They opened for the Bouncing Souls, and they oh, were nice. just kind of blew me away. So you know, this, the Bouncing Souls were sort of starting there. I think I saw their fourth show. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. They were they were big for us. So we should note for the listeners that uh, James and I grew up in a similar area, right around there. And anyway, the Bouncing Souls I, were very popular at least for me in, uh, amongst the college crowd sort of at the time yeah. when I was uh, when I was growing up too I mean they had I know which would be like around around when uh, what, sort of early what, 2000s what oh wow yeah. okay yeah. yeah yeah so you know the souls were getting their thing going and Lifetime uh, it was a band called Lifetime that was, you know pretty large they're not they're not a band anymore but you know they, they got pretty big and they were part of that scene, and a band called Weston uh, was, you know, pretty much part of that scene. And uh, I ended up joining this friend's band uh, called Sticks and Stones. And you know, we all, all those bands, kind of were from within blocks of each other in New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the Souls had their place 
down the street from where half of Sticks and Stones lived on Commercial Ave and uh, in New Brunswick. And um, in that house was like, um, you know, some of the guys from Vision, which is another like huge, important uh, New Jersey hardcore band lived in that house. And well, that, the house was just full of musicians. So that was just like this whole other world. I was suddenly introduced to people who were actually playing music and playing shows seriously and, and had no intention of doing anything else. Yeah. Which was, was not, not with my friends back where I grew up were doing at all. They were going to go to college and, or work, you know, construction jobs or, or do whatever. No one actually was like, I'm going to play music. Like that was right. insanity. So that's, I just kind of got sucked into that world. And, and then we, all those bands, we all did shows together, made some records, went on, went on the road, did a few tours, went to Europe. And you were with Sticks and Stones for about a, a nine, ten year period, sort of in that range? Something like that. Yeah. fallen in you know, <laughs> by now it's, a, it's such a long time you know yeah. we just you know i think it reached a point where this is why people say creative differences i think they reached a point where we couldn't we just couldn't get along yeah mm-hmm. that was the major thing and then kind of along with that and this maybe this segues into you know what you guys you kind of want to talk about like before i joined sticks and stones Sticks and stones was, was very kind of like melodic hardcore band mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And um, great lyrics and, and really innovative songwriting. And I loved them. I, you know, I was a fan. You know, I was a fan. And so, but I grew up like, you know, I liked John Denver and the Beatles. And the Springsteen, <laughs> you know? I mean, I, you know, I liked the replacements too. I liked the Clash. I liked all that stuff too. But I, I had, I had this mishmash of stuff. And like, I, I had, a, I had a very jangly guitar style. And so I liked country music. I liked, I loved Elvis, mm-hmm. you know, I loved Elvis Presley, yeah. you know, in a non-ironic way, I <laughs> love Elvis Presley. And so, uh, you know, I was, I was, uh, at, at the time I was like super obsessed with Scotty Moore, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, who, who's the original guitar player for, you know, Elvis Presley. And, um, you know, had a big old fat hollow body guitar. Yeah. And then, you know, and, and... Did you sport the pompadour? I, I did eventually, yeah. <laughs> nice. I think me... Well, I, you know, I had... I always had this mess of, of uncombed hair. And then, I, really, uh, Pete was the singer of Sticks and Stones and sort of, you know, I, I, he, was a, he was a friend of mine I'd known since we were 12, mm-hmm. but I, I actually idolized him. He was like that friend where I was like, oh my God, you know, he was writing this music and I thought that was awesome. And uh, I think at one point... We watched Rebel Without a Cause, mm-hmm. and then we drove to North Carolina and mm-hmm. got her haircut. 
So you got a cause from Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah, we ended up with the Pompadour came from watching Rebel Without a Cause, wow. and we both got them, and that and, and that that stuck for a couple of years. So um, you went down to actually where Dex Romweber and the and the Flat Duo Jets came from. They came from North Carolina in the sort of the yeah Chapel, the hills Chapel Hill or yeah. something. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But I think that like the, I think there's a major like, I don't know what to call it. Sort of like uh, there's a, there's sort of a DNA difference between like eventually with sticks and stones like pete wanted to do something i think you know he would have described it at the time as as more theatrical Mm -hmm. Mm. he wanted he wanted to like guar theatrical or no no not (laughs) to that extent but i think you know around the time that i was obsessing over springsteen pete was obsessing over david bowie Mm -hmm. Ah, i think that that says a lot like that that ability to transform yeah right and to sort of recreate yourself Right. Was an idea that Pete subscribed to and that I rejected. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so what I, what I wanted was a guy who came, came up out of the crowd and looked like he came up out of the crowd and just played what he wanted to play. I always loved, like, I think in an interview, Angus Young said, uh, you know, they don't do anything on the record that he can't do live. Mm-hmm. Like that, that sort of aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. Was it that the music, the music we were going to, we were going to, play and write and record it's going to happen in a, i don't know if an honest way is is a appropriate word but just something that is just more direct and 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 i think that's what i liked about punk rock and and rock and roll music is right. just something that um can come out of a garage right yeah it's it gets down to the soul of what blues music and early rock and roll really was which was right you know the music of the people or the right. working man and that kind of stuff Right. So, so, you know, at the time to, to tell me I want to do something that's more theatrical is probably the worst thing you could say. And I was just like, absolutely not. You know, like it was just, no, that'll, that'll never happen with, with me and the band. And so in a way, like I, I was holding him back from what he wanted to do and it just had nowhere to go anymore. Right. And so it just dissolved. You know, I think we were in Berlin. Was, was our last show and uh wow that's appropriate yeah. and yeah i was done and he was done <laughs> that was it and so he went on to do a band called world world inferno friendship society which is an awesome band uh-huh. mm-hmm. they're gigantic they're like a 12 piece and it is very he's a character he's changed his name great songs it's it's much more elaborate mm-hmm. and i think you know all those things like that's when i first heard flat duo jets i think that's what turned me on yeah that's what that's what i grabbed onto immediately was that uh, the complete lack of all all of the dressing? Yes, yeah, right? yeah. Just very, very straightforward. So, um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about seeing them? What, uh, where, where did you see them, and that that kind of thing? Well, in in high school, I had this friend Stephanie, and uh, she's still uh, a very good friend of mine. Steph was from the South. She her family moved up to New Jersey for a couple of years, so I met her in high school, and then after that, she went to college in the South. So she went back to the South. Yeah. So I, we would, I would go down there to see her. You know, she went to college. I didn't really go to college. And I think that, you know, you go to college and you have roommates and you get turned on to all kinds of music. I think that's a normal college thing, you know? Right, yeah. And so every time I would hang out with her, there were all these, she would dump all this music on me. Like there's, there's another Chapel Hill band called the Connells who were playing around the same time mm-hmm. and, and um, as the Flat Duo Jets. And I remember she turned me on to them. And it was really on some road trip with her that, you know, she just popped this tape in. It was like, check this band out. And that was the Flat Duo Jets. And I, I want to say it was it was either Go Go Harlem Baby or the previous self-titled yeah, album. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, those uh, were was one of those. Some of the two. Those were kind of the breakouts, it seems, like Go Go Harlem Baby. Those are the aw- awesome. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that one. Great, great. That was the one that cap- captivated Jack White was Go-Go Harlem Baby. Yeah. Well, we talked about it a little bit in the show, but he talks about hearing the cover of Froggy Wanna Courtin on that record and yep. thinking and having it just completely blow his mind that you could take a folk song like that and inject the kind of punk attitude or project the punk attitude upon it and yeah. uh, get this whole other sound out of it uh this this aggression mixed with the with the roots sort of nature of the music i think was something that yeah. very much appealed to him yeah totally um but it, it really i mean i had never really heard anything like that and it wasn't punk and it wasn't rockabilly right right i think that is the probably to me that's the most important thing about flat duo jets and it relates between between hearing them in a car right and then seeing them yeah i think that or, there are a couple of cool things about seeing them but i'll skip ahead <laughs> the one the, the one thing that struck me was you know in new york city there there was a bar called the rodeo bar mm-hmm. and they would do these great free you know little bar shows it was very full calendar like every night there was stuff there it was predominantly rockabilly Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I would go to those. The, the problem with rockabilly is, like, I like it because I like old music. Mm-hmm. And so these are people who are kind of playing this thing that's reminiscent of a, of a period that I like. And, and what I always found with rockabilly compared to punk, the, the bands that I was playing with at the time that I would go see this sort of stuff, is the musicianship was off the scale. Yeah. Like, rockabilly musicians could play. Mm-hmm. Right, like we could, <laughs> we couldn't play. You know, we knew like four notes. Right, these <laughs> guys could play, and and you and and I was always blown away by these guys. But it just doesn't end up meaning much. Like there, there. Whenever I would go, I would see the same faces, the same people. There was definitely a scene. They were dressed up. They had pompadours, and the girls had their look, and it was very much like this dress-up thing. And, and the music really is like reenactment art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, whereas I, 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 you know, I like music from the fifties and sixties, but that they're just playing contemporary music. They're not dressing up, right? right. And I can, I can understand loving it so much that you want to do that. Like I get that, but but there's something about it where you go see it and you go see it often enough where you're sort of like you eventually conclude like this doesn't go anywhere. This is kind of silly. Yeah, it's right. like going to a Johnny Rockets or something. It all, you know. Yeah, you feel dumb. <laughs> you feel dumb after a while. You know, I want a burger, but right. just have the burger, right? And then, so when you hear the Flat Duo Jets, you might picture something like that mm-hmm. right and then you see the flat duo jets yeah. right and those two things together is kind of like a, a revelation because all of all of your expectations are explode right right the minute that they they walk in right and they they don't look like the band you they they take the stage and you're like well i thought the stage crew was dumb yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> And and then they start playing, and you're like, "This is a long line check. Right. Like, it's, it's, it's on. Like, let's let's have the band." And then they start singing. You're like, "That's Dex Romplever." <laughs> you know. Uh, so it it totally that and uh, it sounds like a small thing, but that's they just um, they were so real. They're not interested in in the uh, pompadour and the shirt and, right. and the any of that. That's what made them awesome. Is it wasn't dress up and it wasn't retro right. and it wasn't like attempt to recreate something or to harken back to anything. This was, right. it was, was grabbing those elements and going completely contemporary with them. 
Right. Contemporary, not not in, in like rearranging things or in production wise. It, it completely had no interest in dressing up and playing at something. Right. It was yeah. very real. It was very real to those two or three guys on the stage. Yeah. They right. were pulling inspiration from the past, but still looking forward to yeah, new music. Yeah, yeah. When I say contemporary, I, I mean that at that time, mm-hmm. yeah. that's when you know bands like the Bouncing Souls and wherever were like playing real punk rock music. You know, right. and so that's what they were doing too. They were just uh, in, it was just informed by a very particular period from maybe the fifties or sixties, right? Right. right. We, we were drawing inspirations from the seventies CB scene, and they were drawing it from. Yeah, Gene you know, Vincent. Vincent or, <laughs> right. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, he had, uh, um, he, they really idolized a lot of people, Gene Vincent in particular, but Jerry Lee Lewis was another big inspiration. Sure. And uh, early Elvis, uh, Richie Valens, yeah. Buddy Holly, Little Richard, yeah. those types of people. And you could tell when, whenever you hear him talk, and it's a trip to hear him talk, actually, um, <laughs> interviews with him are always bizarre uh, but he he speaks very genuinely he speaks from the heart about this stuff and there's never an air of pretension about it which is why i sometimes struggle with the term psychobilly and that whole scene because mm. to me it, it always makes me feel like exactly what you're saying almost like a, like they're trying too hard or something like yeah like it's a production but yeah you could tell dex boy did he mean mean what he was singing you could hear it from the bottom of his soul you could hear it in the vocal. Steph and I eventually moved to Hoboken, New Jersey, where, where there was a club called Maxwell's, which was a pretty major New York area mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. right? Maxwell's was a very important club. And it was co-owned for a while. Like Pete Buck from R.E.M. bought into Maxwell's oh, cool. at some point there in the 90s. And the shows there were fantastic. Like, it was awesome. And um, it, it has been referred to as CBGB's West. Oh, cool. Like, it, it, it was a great room. If you've never been to Maxwell's, I, I guess it's still there. Like, the front is this, like, sort of pub, restaurant pub thing. And then there's this back room that's just, like, a perfect, it's really tight. It's very small. It's a perfect size. The shows there were just awesome. It was, and you know, if a band was coming to New York, they would kind of ditch out and do this little stop at Maxwell's. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, the White Stripes played there in 2000, actually. Okay, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, have you ever been to that room? I have, I've never been there, but... The uh, room is so small. Yeah, I believe it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great room to be in. We played there, and, you know, so they had a great mix of, like, smaller bands, bigger bands, anybody could play. saw Jim Carroll there, you know, it was awesome. It's the reason I moved to Hoboken, was Maxwell's, (laughs) and, uh... Anyway, so Steph and I moved to Hoboken, and we lived a few blocks away from this place. And at some point, the Flat Duo Jets were playing, and, and I, had, I had heard the record and stuff. What I'd, I'd love to ask her how she knew it was him. <laughs> I don't know if she'd seen a still, but now I sort of wonder if she had seen them before. <laughs> so maybe she had already seen them. We went to Maxwell's. We got there early. We got a table out front. We were having a beer. Mm-hmm. And we were talking, and you know, you're kind of not conscious of the room around you. You're just having a conversation, and all of a sudden, you know, when there's like a, somebody drops a dish of glasses, like you, you're, you know, you hunch over. You're like, oh my god, you know, yeah. you sort of duck. Where all of a sudden, I, I'm like, you know, ducking because something is going on, and I, I look over, and now this is like a, um, a Manhattan or Brooklyn or you know, Hoboken was very much Brooklyny, like. Um, 
restaurant dining room yes. area, mm-hmm. you know. And by the way, looking at photos of it online, I have been there. I have eaten there. I've oh. never saw a show oh. there, but I had a buddy who lived in. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had a buddy who lived in Hoboken, not far from there. So anyway, I know exactly the room you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's this, it's this for real, uh, you know, it's a pub, yeah. you know. Um, anyway, this guy is he's standing on one of the tables. No shirt, no shoes. Plenty of service. <laughs> howling. Like, literally howling at the top of his lungs. So that everything stops in the room. Like, it's utter insanity. Imagine just being in a restaurant and talking, and all of a sudden someone is screaming, and you look over, and there's a dude <laughs> with pants, no shirt, no shoes, standing on the table, screaming at the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's what's happening. And I'm just, you know, everything stops, and you're just trying to take this in, and sort of your brain is trying to catch up. <laughs> and I look at Steph, and she goes... That's him. <laughs> <laughs> so she knew, I don't know, she knew that was him. That's why I'm like, oh, I wonder if she saw them. <laughs> but anyway, she's like, that's him. And so I guess this was the cue that they were about to play. Right? It's either so, that or she realized that if the police weren't rushing in at this moment, it probably was the main act. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it could any number of possibilities there. But I don't, you know, I, I was trying to to figure out what year this might have been and it might have been at this point it's not around 95 i'm gonna say mid 90s and so that show i was i'm really trying to remember the show i have some you know shows are a blur a little bit the show was awesome that's what i mean like so so there's that and you're like that's not what i expected you do kind of start to expect like this sort of like very calculated look with with something that sounds like that was it a shorter set or was it uh, a pretty long show? No, it was, you know, it was a pretty, you know, it was a regular kind of bar show. It's not, this is not a, like a Madison Square Garden concert. It's, you right. know, it's a, it's a bar. So, um, like you know, I don't know, an hour. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to say that Crow was still playing drums, so I can't swear to that. I think he was at that time. He, toward the latter half of the 90s, that he was starting to miss like a bunch of gigs and they were bringing in Crash, yeah. but... You know, it was great. It was a full room, so they had some support. It wasn't not hard to fill that room, but they had some support. It sounds like it sounds on the record, yeah. you know? It's awesome. Sound, and it's, he's, his voice, man, it sounds like it sounds on the record. Yeah. Awesome. And that's that's one of the striking things about them, because like I said, and, and I feel like it's been coming across as disparaging, So, uh, uh, but I don't mean it that way. When you hear him talk, he does sound uh, significantly deranged, but when he sings, <laughs> oh my God, he has a beautiful singing voice, and it's yeah. This low, croony, kind of yeah. melodic way about it. But when he, what I mean, when he chooses to scream and, and tap into that punk stuff, that works too. But what really attracted yeah. to me about it was just hearing that voice come out of that man was shocking to me. <laughs> and it's uh, it's remarkable. He's he's a really really great musician. I couldn't hear him without thinking of Glenn Danzig. Okay, yeah. I mean, the first time I heard him, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I really I, I really had trouble trying to to understand what I was hearing because I was hearing so many different things infiltrating into the songs, and and I was just trying to sitting there in a car trying to wrap my head around where this was coming from you know was is this just more rockabilly or like i said then you've got this guy who sounds a lot like glenn danzig and so then that starts to invoke these other influences you know i don't i never really knew what to make of that i don't i don't think there's any conscious thing there but then you start to realize that there's some there's something other than kind of a rockabilly thing going on in here Mm -hmm. yeah and so that i mean that was that show yeah then I think the next time I saw him was during the CMJ in New York, the College Music Festival. 
So uh-huh. what, I, I don't know if you've ever been to that, but what happens at the CMJ is it's basically this citywide festival where they sort of take over the programming at, at all of the clubs that want to participate. And you can buy a, a, a laminate. You know, you basically just go to as many shows as you want to go to. And they're all happening. Yeah, they're all happening all the time. They do it every year, I think. So there's something every night, and usually there's you have to pick and choose because there's great shows up against each other. But it sounds vaguely South by Southwesty in that it's a lot of different clubs. Yeah, yeah, you have yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I I always thought there was some incongruity there, like the Flat Duo Jets in the College Music Festival, because it just felt like my idea or prejudice against what I would call college music. I just felt like <laughs> Flat Duo Jets would sort of eat those bands alive, you know, but I also understand, you know, I've, I've played the CMJ, so I also understand that you're hoping for exposure to more people and that, you know, it's going to yeah. bring people to your show. So I, I, I think that's probably part of it for them. But that was at CBGB's. Not mm, very well awesome. attended. Um, that's, the, that, that's the real tragedy of, of the Flat Duo Jets in general. And you speak of not well attended is that they really had such a limited audience uh, while, Doesn't while make they any were sense. in there in their prime, you know? I mean, uh, it seems... Yeah. To say that, that brings me to a question uh, that I forgot to ask, which was, at that first show you saw them at, uh, when he was standing on the table, was the audience mostly there to see them, or were they just a bar crowd that were surprised by this man? No, the that's table? the thing about any Maxwell show, is is the two rooms are separate. There's the there's the restaurant, right? If you didn't okay. know the back room was there, you, you wouldn't know. Gotcha. You, there's, yeah. you can't tell at all. So there's this front, you okay. know, and it, it runs perfectly fine. People go there for dinner and go home. You you have to willingly go <laughs> through, through the curtains <laughs> and through the back door. I was, door just, like, I was picturing, like, a couple at a table, like, having a nice yeah. dinner, uh, you know, burgers, and then he gets on their table. Well, that is what happens. Servers are just slowly taking That That away. is what happened. But but then, you know, you were supposed to follow him into the other room where, where the, the band okay. actually <laughs> Played, but that, that is exactly what happened. Okay, um, great. Honey, there's a man standing in your potato salad. <laughs> Get pokey off totally of there. Insane. Uh, so yeah, you you know anyone in that back room had to buy a ticket and meant to be there. It was there to see the show. Okay, okay. Um, and then CB's was just kind of. Uh, I remember it being an early sh- early show. They might have been kind of in an opening slot, which is dumb. And no, there weren't a lot of people there. And now that I, as I visualize it, no, I think it was the main room. So it, it was at CB's. Uh, you know, you can always tell what CB's expectation is because if, if you had ever been to CBGB's, there's, you know, you walk in, there's the booths and, and the bar opposite of each other as you, as you walk in. It's a long, narrow room. And then after where the bar ends, it kind of opens up a little wider. There's no more booths. And then there was actually a table area and, and then the stage. And so the club pre-sales or whatever knew that this was going to be a packed show. They would remove those tables and you would have that stand, general admission like pit area in front of the stage. Uh, in this case, the tables were all there. Right. So yeah. I think they knew that this was not going to be a packed show and, and it wasn't. Right. And so there are people sitting down. That's the other CMJ is dumb. You just, it's it's like, um, you know, I don't know who these people are, to tell you the truth. I mean, there's definitely like real music fans there. But I don't know. You don't go to a Flat Duo Jets show to sit down at a table. It's no. weird, right? <laughs> table service at Flat Duo Jets doesn't make sense. So there's people <laughs> sitting down at the table, and maybe, maybe I think you know, I don't know. I, I can't profile him, but Flat Duo Jets do this awesome set, short, short set, half hour set, right? To like sparsely attended room, and then best part of the set, 
so that they end. And Dexter jumps off the stage, lands on the tables. <laughs> it should be physically impossible. We have forward momentum, <laughs> should, should topple everything. He, he should really hurt himself. I, uh, I don't know how, you know. Maybe somehow, he did. Maybe he did. No, he, no, he <laughs> lands on the tables, turned around, grabbed his guitar sort of like from the butt of the guitar and just threw it like a spear <laughs> straight into his amplifier. Like head, headstock first, right into the amplifier. Everything oh collapses. Oh, God. Runs straight out the front door barefoot. <laughs> out, out into the street. Did he know he wasn't getting paid that evening because he ruined I, the club? You know, I, I've, seen, I've seen so much <laughs> Yeah. He seems like he's playing an eternal game of hot lava, or the ground is lava. He's <laughs> yeah, always barefoot. Barefoot both times. But uh, yeah, straight, out, straight outside. I did not see him come back in <laughs> into the snow, like like a like some kind of weird punk rock Wendigo. Yeah, exactly. Uh, guys, I don't know if there's a better place to leave this conversation that, uh, uh, than with that notion of Dexter from Whipper. How do you follow that? I'm sorry for the next band running into the streets. You know, I left at that at that point. But I don't uh, know what the next band does, but can't top that. Uh, <laughs> And we can't top that either. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that was amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> that's incredible. We would we would love to have you back and tell us more uh, stories of destruction throughout <laughs> the uh, Northeast. Thank you again for joining us. In addition to your to your music, you also are an artist and you work on comic book projects. Is there anything you want to plug while you're here? Um, oh, yeah, I have a new book. Thanks for mentioning that. So yeah. I have a, a nice. book with a, a playwright named Adam Rapp. Uh, the book mm-hmm. is called Decelerate Blue. just came out okay. in February by a publisher called First Second Books. Uh, it's sort of a dystopian future. One of my favorites of anything I've had the opportunity to work on. It's, a, it's Adam's a, a great writer, great script. I really enjoyed working on that, so check it out. Where Sorry. can they pick that up? Uh, you know, any uh, people have gotten it at uh, comic shops. Uh, you know, I'm hearing back from people. People found it at Barnes & Noble. It's pretty much available anywhere. You know, they may not have it on the shelf, but it's, it's you know, available for order. You know, Amazon, all that stuff. The Seller of Blue for Great. Second Books. Yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can know where to find it. And cool. um, and really, thank you again for joining us. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Mike. Yeah, thank All you right. so much. All right, thanks, guys. See ya. That was our show, James. Boy, what a good show. Uh, you know what? It turned out all right, even though you're you're slowly dying due to some kind of fever and i'm slowly sinking into the earth's crust via my lack of sleep yeah so on that note we'll give some shout outs here for new people interacting with us on social media we got will runner thank you will yeah thanks thanks will thanks joel cosby thank you joel we have steven winnow i think it's winnow thank you steven yeah let's go with winnow uh thank you adam kinney thanks adam thanks adam yeah thanks adam and then we have angelina seha so thank you, Angelina. Thanks. Uh, then we got some regulars here that we uh, that we see the day in day out. Thank you to Jeremy Riles. Thank you to Callie Durga. Thank you to Adrian King. Thank you, Andre Lyman. Thank you, Eileen Corsano and Paul. Thank you, David Poe. 
And we'd also thank you, David. And we'd also like to thank our third man for this week, Mike Cavallaro. Uh, that was really cool uh, getting a yet another uh, real live musician on the show. But you know, having Mike uh, Cavallaro on there was really cool. Yeah, he did great. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, and then we have to thank Sam Kubert, Tom Valenti for our theme song. Uh, we'd like to thank Susanna Roundtree for the intro and outro of our show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thirdmen. We're on Twitter at thirdmencast. We're on Tumblr at thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. You can go to our, our WordPress site, thethirdmen.wordpress.com to see all the show notes. You can email us at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, you could search us on YouTube. Uh, we have some stuff up on there. You could uh, rate, review, and subscribe, which brings me to a contest, which I'll just kick you the rules real quick. If you want to win a Loretta Lynn DVD, we have one ready for, for the pickings. So in order to win this DVD in our contest, you could uh, write a review on iTunes for our show, take a screenshot of that review, send it to our Gmail uh, with your name and address, and we will, once we get to 20, we'll pick randomly uh, through everybody who, who sent in a review, and uh, we'll, we'll mail that DVD off to you guys free of charge. So keep those reviews coming. We got a few already, so that's been nice. And uh, yeah, th- there's, there's a contest. Yes, absolutely, James. And uh, until next week, James, I will be looking for a home. And I'll be looking for a home in some kind of shack in North Carolina. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. Did you watch Baby's Day Out? Um, because I needed something to te- keep on. Cool. All right, all right. I feel like we both just got through a ringer in the slums of Detroit. Yeah, real ring stinger. Gross. <laughs> um. But uh, we're at the genuine speed. Yeah, I missed that, but I'm sure it was profound. Um, <laughs> oh man! Ah, very good. Kale <laughs> <laughs> here. Um, something, something you can beat up and learn on. <laughs> um, what? Mm. All right, all right, all right. All right so stay on up, stay on the line. Right. <laughs> Man, today is not our day. Uh, continue. <laughs>